Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations. We don't read there there very often. It's laments. It's not uh, fun. But we have a wonderful passage in the midst of it today. Lamentation chapter 3. If you don't know where this is, it's right after Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Jeremiah is one of the biggest, probably one of the biggest books in the Old Testament. Probably find that. Just keep reading. Lamentation chapter 3. We'll look this morning at verses 22 to 24, a very brief section. <clears throat> Thanksgiving always comes early at the chapel, and for a lot of churches around here, it seems that uh, they will have a worship service on Thanksgiving morning, be their tradition. But today is the chapel Thanksgiving, we might say. Today we bring our prayers and songs of Thanksgiving. Today we celebrate the Eucharist, which is literally the Thanksgiving and tonight we will have a feast and tell of God's faithfulness. So, so this morning I want us to return to a favorite passage of mine, which gives us some great reason to be thankful. Leviticus chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Let me read it. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. I would like to suggest two truths which we find in this, this little passage. Two points. The first is this. In his anger, God remembers mercy. In his anger, God remembers mercy. Traditionally, at Thanksgiving, we tend to look back over the last year and remember all the blessings we received, all the reasons we have to give thanks. But in recent years, it seems that when we look back, we're more likely overwhelmed by all the trouble we've seen. Natural disasters, people suffering at the hands of tyrants, our own country divided uh, by political strife, and, and Christ's church being persecuted as it seldom has around the world. The news is often so negative that it raises the question uh, of whether God is really in control at all. But as Jeremiah wrote these verses, he knew about trouble. He wrote while sitting in the rubble of what used to be Jerusalem. Jeremiah did not have to speculate about why all this happened, why the disaster that he witnessed. He knew he had just seen the fearsome wrath of God unleashed. For decades, God had warned his people, Israel, to turn away from the false gods, turn away from their paganism, and return to him, to Yahweh, the only true God. God has sent prophets, one after another, to address the spiritual adultery of his people and call them to repentance. Through Jeremiah, God had warned his people of this exact thing that happened. But they would not listen. They went merrily on their sinful ways. And even when their enemies appeared on the horizon, they simply made more alliances with other pagan nations, thinking that they could protect them. But God is no fool. God raised up the mighty Babylonian army. They came in three waves, piece by piece. They carved up the land of Judah and carried off the people. 
when everything else was destroyed, they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. For 18 months, they starved the city to death. Finally, they broke through and took the city captive. They ruthlessly slaughtered many people. They carried thousands away back to Babylon. They burned the the city to the ground. They completely dismantled the temple of God, took everything of value. They killed the king's sons as he watched and then put out his eyes so he could live with the horror of it. When the Babylonians were finished with Jerusalem, there was nothing left but rubble. A taste of the fearsome wrath of God. So in Lamentation, Jeremiah, who for years had warned that God's judgment was coming, now sits down in the rubble of Jerusalem and assesses the situation. As he looked around as far as he could see, there was nothing but destruction. Not everyone was dead, but the only people left were the poorest of the poor. Those who were too weak or uneducated to be of any use to the Babylonians were left to scratch through the ruins to try to survive. Well, there were thousands still alive, but they were off in Babylon. They were alive, but they were slaves. The best and the brightest of Judah had been carried away. People like Daniel and Ezekiel. But there was no question about what happened. God had unleashed the fury of his wrath just like he promised he would. So how would you respond? If you were Jeremiah, sitting in the rubble, what would you say? Perhaps you would respond with hopelessness. God has forgotten us. We're destroyed by his hand. And if God's against us, we have no hope. Or perhaps you would respond with anger. How could God let this happen? I know we weren't perfect, but this is terrible. People killed and tortured and enslaved. God's temple completely destroyed. How dare God do that to us? Well, Jeremiah does neither. Not hopelessness, not anger. Instead, he composes this stanza of praise. In the midst of his lament... Oh, yes, he laments the destruction of the city and the sin which caused it. That is what so much of this book is about. But here in verses 22 to 24, he lifts his voice in praise. Blessed, because the Lord, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. In his anger, God has remembered mercy. Here Jeremiah extols God's faithfulness. God kept his promise of judgment. He did exactly what he said he would do. Way back in Deuteronomy, he was saying he would do this if you turn away. But that means he will keep his other promises too. Promises of mercy and restoration. God has been faithful. He has left a remnant who would inherit those promises. In his anger, God had remembered mercy. Folks, here's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian view of trouble in the world. The non-Christian argues, if there were a God, 
How could he let such things happen? If he was good, he wouldn't let it happen unless he was not powerful enough to change it. I wouldn't want to serve such a tyrant, they say. But the Christian who understands the holiness and the justice of God says, if God is totally holy and absolutely just, why are we not totally consumed by his anger? Why aren't things worse than they are? God must not only be holy, he must also be merciful and compassionate, for here we are alive, still enjoying his goodness. In his anger, God has remembered mercy. As Jeremiah assesses the situation, he also extols God's love. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, he says. The word love is that wonderful Hebrew word, the one Hebrew word I know, chesed. It used to be translated loving kindness, and then scholars learned that it has way more to say than that one translation. Chesed is the love that keeps marriages together. What do you call that trait that you've seen in some older people who've been married 60, 70 years? Is, is, is it love? Well, yeah, it's love. But every couple that gets married loves one another, and yet many of those marriages never make it. You see, it's a special kind of love. It's a love that gives oneself away even when such kindness is not deserved. It's a love that remembers one's promises even when others are forgetting their promises. It's a love that keeps on loving even when the other's loveliness fades. It's a love that keeps the covenant even if there are multitudes who do not. That Hebrew word, Hesed is for that kind of love, covenant loyalty, faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. You see, when there was no reason for anything but wrath, God still remembered his promises. He still graciously remained loyal to his covenant. He loved his people even as he chastened them. In his anger, God remembered mercy. Folks, what Jeremiah saw in his survival was only a hint of this great truth. But we have seen more. We've seen it in its fullness. This is what God has done in the coming of the Lord Jesus. God knows the wrath he is about to pour out on the world in the last day. But God is not willing that the whole world should just perish as we deserve in his anger against sin. He still remembered his promise to save people for himself. So he sent his son, Jesus, not to condemn the world, not yet, but to take God's punishment of sin upon himself in order to be merciful to some whom he had chosen, in order uh, uh, to, 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 bring, to bring grace in the midst of judgment on the wicked who deserve his wrath. And now he calls us to flee to Jesus for refuge in the face of the coming wrath. He promises everyone who trusts Jesus will live forever. He promises that, that since we are such simple sheep and we wouldn't even come in out of the rain, he sends his Holy Spirit to draw us irresistibly and bring us to himself. Oh, Jeremiah only saw a glimpse of how great God's mercy really is but we see it in its fullness in Jesus that in his anger, God has first remembered mercy. 
Folks, that truth is still valid today. That's what it says here. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. If God gave us what our sins deserve, we would be totally destroyed, totally consumed. But he gives us life. He gives us another breath. He gives us another opportunity to hear about Jesus and a heart to trust him to bring us safely to Jesus. Perhaps you're sitting here in the rubble of your own life this morning feeling the weight of your failure, sensing the gloom of hopelessness hanging over you, tempted to despair that you will never get it all together. Well, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. He's brought you to that place to see the hopelessness of your situation. But he does this so that you might come to know his mercy, his grace, his love, his hesed, his faithful loyalty, his compassion in Jesus. This morning I call, call you to admit your sinfulness. Confess that you deserve his judgment. And then call upon Jesus to forgive and save you for that purpose he died on the cross to take our sins upon himself so ask him and trust him to keep his promise and give you eternal life for I tell you the truth even in his anger God still remembers mercy now there's another verse we haven't talked about verse 24 I say to myself the Lord is my portion therefore I will wait for him this brings us to a second point a bit briefer than the first. Second point is this. Only God is enough. Only God is enough. Since I was a kid celebrating Thanksgiving at my grandmother's house, I have always loved pie. She made pie. You can take all the cake, I don't care. Give me a piece of pie. In fact, as a kid, that was always a problem. The pieces were never quite big enough. And then, more recently, Jane's mom would come and see us at Thanksgiving. And then there was plenty of pie. She made lots of pies. And you could always have as big a portion as you wanted. So how big a piece is enough? How about if you got a quarter of a pie? Would that be enough? Half a pie? A whole pie? You, you know, you could eat a whole pie. You could eat till you couldn't stand another bite of pie. But in a very real sense, it would still not be enough. It would be enough pie, you understand. But it wouldn't really satisfy the hunger in your heart. Knowing that, we turn our hunger to other bigger things than pie, more substantive things, which will surely satisfy the longing within us. We acquire cars and houses and boats, and, and, and we, we get degree, degree, degrees and titles and positions, and, and we learn to enjoy pleasure and, and leisure and sex, and wow, we've got it all now. How, but how much is enough? Even of those things, more never seems to be enough, does it? It seems we would need an infinite slice of life's bounty to satisfy us. There's just never enough. Oh, but our text lovingly points us back to the truth our hearts hunger for. 
Only God is enough. Only God is enough. Consider the absurdity of grace. Imagine this statement in verse 24. The Lord is my portion. What? God is my portion as if I could possess him? God is my infinite piece of pie? That's exactly the absurdity of grace. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will belong to you. You will belong to me. This, brothers and sisters, is infinite treasure for which we search our whole life in vain. Don't squander the treasure for the trinkets of the world, the little pieces of the world's right here in Naupai, which can never satisfy your soul. Only God is enough. Oh, make no mistake, this is still a statement of faith. The fact is clear that only God is enough, but knowing that does not mean that I always feel satisfied every moment. It means that I know by faith I understand that only God is enough. But at any given moment, I may feel lonely, empty, discouraged, hungry, friendless, and many things claim that they can satisfy those feelings. Still, all our bad feelings do not nullify what we know by faith to be true, that the Lord is our portion and only he is enough. So this admission, only God is enough, becomes a commitment to walk by faith, to do what we know rather than what we feel. We're We're not consumed by God's anger at our sin because of his faithfulness to his covenant, his hesed. In the same way, we determine we will keep hesed with him. We will be loyal to his covenant. We will be faithful. We will love him back. It means being willing to wait for what we know is enough, but we don't have yet. Renouncing all the cheap imitations that claim that they can satisfy, that would tend to lure us away from him. It means taking 20, verse 24 as our own statement, our own conviction. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Only God is enough for me. Marriage is a covenant like that, you know. One in which we say, you are my portion. I will be content with you. Forsaking all others, I will keep myself only and always for you. But in marriage, it doesn't take long for us to learn that this one to whom we've sworn sworn faithfulness is really not enough at all. Our spouses are not perfect. Some are pitifully deficient. And we see it, and they see it in us. Still, God calls us to faithfulness, to continue to live that commitment. You are my portion, when we feel like it and when we don't. 
But unlike our marriage, God really is enough. He is our portion. And he will never disappoint those who wait for him. So though we don't see it all yet, we swear our allegiance. We pledge our truth. We commit ourselves to covenant faithfulness just like he did. The Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. Folks, this may sound heavy and theological, but this is the most practical thing you can think. This is to be the attitude of the Christian in times of trouble. To know that God, no matter what the trouble, God in his mercy has still shown mercy in the midst of his anger. And he's still my portion. This would be the attitude of the Christian in good times. It may be all great, but the Lord is still my portion. This is the attitude of the child of God when he, uh, he apparently has lost everything. Okay, so I've lost everything. But the Lord has shown mercy even in the midst of his judgment. And the Lord is my portion. Without him, I'm nothing. So I would rather be nothing and trust him than to put my faith in something else that holds no hope. No, the Lord is my portion. No matter how bleak it looks, I will wait for him. For I know that even in the midst of his anger, he shows mercy. He is still enough. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to preach this, but oh, it's so hard to live faithfully to these things in the midst of a world that uh, calls out to us that everything that we can imagine would satisfy the hunger of our hearts and that, that, that God ought to be rejected because he does hard things and, and, and we don't see everything that he's promised yet. Oh, Father, give us more wisdom than that. Help us to trust you. Help us to know and to believe and to revel in the fact that you've shown mercy even in the midst of your judgment. And help us to be faithful, Lord, to trust you and to love you, to not uh, go astray, climbing after other things, to really say, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. Thank you for this truth. Help us to live it with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.